Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The media shows its narrative warfare chops. Late night comedians replace punchlines with protest slogans and the pronoun wars. You're listening to the Propaganda Report podcast. I'm Brad Binkley. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everyone. If I were teaching a class on narrative warfare, I would use today and yesterday's news to show exactly what it looks like in action, which we will talk about today and I will show today. But first, I want to talk about pronouns, more specifically, pronouns in relation to the Great Reset. I've been talking a lot lately about the role that global corporations have in the Great Reset, how they're being used to try and force this woke progressive agenda onto all of us and to transform society. They know the public won't vote for these radical policies, so they subvert the will of the people using these global corporations, which is not a bad plan because these corporations do have more influence across the globe than any single government does, and they can strip people of their rights without running afoul of the Constitution since they are technically private companies. And we see examples of this every day in the news. There's not a controversial political issue today that comes up where corporations do not come out and make public statements and announce the woke progressive policies that they're going to be enacting in response to whatever the story is. It's a grand virtue signaling followed usually by some sort of company policy. We had the Gillette toxic masculinity commercial from a few years ago, Disney with all its gender stuff in their movies and all these corporations who very virtuously pull out of Russia and refuse to do business with them. And most recently, the corporate response to Roe v. Wade so those, those are the type of examples that we see all the time with these corporations showing that they no longer care about their customers or the needs of their customers first. They only care about pumping up their Great Reset ESG score so that they can get more of that ESG bribery money from companies like BlackRock and I believe Vanguard and others like that. And today is no different. Another day, another virtue signal for profit, this one coming from Halifax, which is one of the oldest and biggest banks in the United Kingdom. It's been around since 1853. One way that you can spot an ESG-aligned Great Reset company is when you see a company make a so-called get-woke, go-broke move, where they kind of screw over their customers for the sake of some woke agenda. And get-woke, go-broke isn't always necessarily true because while they do lose revenue because they piss off their customers, companies like BlackRock make sure they're well compensated if they're doing enough of this ESG-like stuff to make it worth their while. Halifax Bank did that just this week showing their willingness to screw over their customers, or not care about the needs of their customers anyway, for the sake of the ESG, when they found themselves at the center of a self-created controversy after their official Twitter account tweeted a photo of an employee's badge that had the pronouns she, her, hers on it just below the employee's name. With the photo, they also tweeted the following statement. Pronouns matter. Hashtag It's a people thing. And they chose to do this on Twitter where they knew it would get a big response. They knew it would be controversial and they knew that they would receive criticism 
for this virtue signal because that is what happens on Twitter. It was obviously a provocation to demonstrate their allegiance to the ESG. Their parent company, by the way, Lloyd Banking, is partnered with BlackRock on ESG matters, so the shoe definitely fits. In response to their tweet, they received a lot of criticism, as expected. People threatened to close their accounts, and the bank was accused of having malfunctioning cash machines and not enough branches open because they were too focused on virtue signaling instead, which seems about right. The bank responded in a couple of ways. First, they explained that they want to create a safe and accepting environment that opens the conversation around gender identity. Is that what you want to do when you go to work? You get up in the morning, you go to work at the bank, excited because you're going to get to open up the conversation with your customers about gender identity. I mean, I know that's why I go to the bank. The only reason I go to the bank is I'm hoping someone's going to start a conversation with me about gender identity. I'm hoping to be put in that situation when I just want to go cash a check to be forced to talk about a controversial social issue with my bank teller. That's exactly what every banking customer wants. Obviously, that's not the case. Obviously, this was a measure put in to push the progressive Great Reset agenda by forcing this social conversation on people who are just trying to go to the bank. And they don't care that it makes their customers uncomfortable, probably even some of the employees, because it's not about what the customer wants. It's about what pumps up their ESG social credit score. They went on to tweet that they care about their customers and colleagues' individual preferences. And they said that for them, it's a very simple solution to accidental misgendering. And that's what it's about right there. And we're going to see more and more of this type of stuff. The solution to misgendering is that everyone should just make their pronouns known up front. That is what they're trying to push right now with the idea being that the new social norm is going to be that we default to calling people they or them. And we are called that. The polite thing to do is call people that until the person otherwise makes their pronouns known, whether it's through their badge, whether they put it on their locker, on a book bag, whether they tattoo it on their forehead, or, or they just say it. I'm a he, him. Until then, you will be referred to as they, them. That is the standard they want to put in place. And Halifax went on to do what every ESG company does, which is show that they are more than willing, as if the initiative itself didn't show that, to say F off to their customers for the sake of pushing this globalist woke agenda. And they encourage people who disagreed with this new policy, to just go ahead and close their accounts and find another bank. They did say that the gender pronouns would be optional. But will it? Because one of the initiatives, or one of the ways that this ESG works, if you look at Bank of America as a model and some of the other companies, is they incentivize the employees by giving them more money. They connect their compensation to that individual employee's willingness to carry out some of these social measures. Also, they will be subjected to shame and pressure. They will be looked at as a bigot if they are not showing what their pronouns are. So they say it's optional, and perhaps it is. But if you want to get in good favor with the boss or with the higher-ups, I bet you're going to have your pronouns underneath your name over at Halifax Bank. And make no doubt about it, something like this is exactly the type of initiative or the type of action that a company does to increase their ESG score. The transgender pronoun actions by a company absolutely affects it. All you have to do is look at just about any ESG report, which companies are putting out once or twice a year the past couple of years, and you will see 
And usually the either the social or the governance section, the governance being how they govern their company, you will see what is DEI. DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And in all of these reports, they publish, because it's all about transparency and showing the globalist what you're doing to meet the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals Agenda, the Great Reset. They publish these DEI initiatives, and they give a breakdown in the initiatives of gender, race, and sexual preferences of their employees. The higher a company has of employees who identify as gay or bisexual or trans or whatever, the higher their ESG score, the more access they get to that ESG money. A bribe. So Halifax is owned by Lloyd Banking, and in Lloyd Banking Group's 2021 ESG report, in their section on diversity and inclusion data, they have the percentage of colleagues who disclose that they are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans. So it's right there in the report of this company that by getting employees to identify as trans, that improves their ESG score. You can see it right there in the report. And you can see that they have increased their number of employees identifying as trans over the past three years. Let's look at the numbers in their diversity and inclusion data of their ESG data sheet. The percentage of colleagues who disclose they are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender in 2015 was 1.2%, 2016, 1.5%, 2017, 1.7%, 2018, 2, 2019, 2.2, 2020, 2.3. So they have slowly but surely increased that number. And what better way to further increase that number and your ESG score and your access to that bribe money than by announcing an initiative on Twitter that your employees will now be putting their pronouns on their name tags. What a great way to pump that score up. They don't do this because they care about those issues. They do it because they're getting paid off to do it. This is how the Great Reset works. And the corporations are just one way that they try and infect the public, society, culture, with this progressive Great Reset agenda. They also use the universities. They also use influencers. Anybody who is trusted among the public. A few weeks ago, Jennifer Lopez was in the news because she introduced her 14-year-old child, says child in the article because they're they, them, with gender-neutral pronouns as they perform together at Los Angeles Dodgers Stadium. This is a couple of weeks ago. There was a video where J-Lo introduced her kid as those gender-neutral pronouns. Her kid, her 14-year-old kid named Emma, E-M-M-E, appears to be a girl biologically. And after being introduced via video onto the stage, both they and Lopez appeared on the stage holding a rainbow microphone and they did a duet which I'm sure was lovely. And it doesn't stop with corporations and influencers. Universities also are used to carry this progressive Great Reset agenda, the messages of it, through their actions and policies. As we have, here's Emory University, who just a couple of days ago announced that students will soon be able to select their own pronouns in Opus. Opus is their online pathway to university students. And... It says that for more than 10 years, students have had the option to designate their preferred name through the university's official student information system. Now, thanks to modifications within the system and a policy change, which is effective this month during Pride Month, students will soon be able to, for the first time, designate their pronouns. 
Pronoun options include he, him, his, she, her, hers, they, them, theirs, X-I-E, H-I-R, H-I-R-S. I haven't seen that one before. And then we have Z, Zer, and Zers. And it says if a student's pronouns are missing from the list, the pronoun menu also offers the choice of pronouns not listed, giving students a chance to correct the record and add their pronouns as well. Also, students can opt out of designating their pronouns. They will be shamed and tarred and feathered. That part's not included in the press release. That's just implied. And the press release goes on to say that our names and pronouns are essential to our identities. The most common ways we refer to one another. When we call a person by the wrong name or pronoun, we risk causing them to feel disrespected. The traditional pronouns, she, him, her, he, him, his, represent the traditional gender binary. We must update our language to reflect our appreciation of the range of gender identities and our respect for all people. Isn't living life risking feeling disrespected? Don't we put ourselves at that risk all the time? If they have to change policies based on every possible thing that could cause somebody to feel disrespected, they're going to be doing nothing but changing policies all the time at Emory. Because people now, they've been conditioned to be offended by absolutely everything and thus disrespected by absolutely everything. So we are now going to be at the mercy of those who feel disrespected over nothing because that's how they've been conditioned to react to absolutely anything. That's a great idea. Let's give those people the power. Let's change our policies on a whim every time one of these people and these groups, and I mean young people, I don't mean anybody in any gender identity or identifies any way, I mean younger people who have been indoctrinated by this progressive ideology. Let's give them all the power and we'll just change everything about everything whenever they get upset because something's not woke enough. There's a theater that I am aware of that During the pandemic, they started doing things like putting BLM in their window and doing trans-only nights at their theater. And the people who run this place are in no way are they aligned with this agenda. They just think that they're supposed to do that. They think that they're supposed to pretend to be woke because that'll end up getting them customers. And it will get them some customers. But they also, they require masks, require vaccine cards, all kind of other stuff. Every single thing that the progressive agenda calls for they're in line with. And all they're doing by doing that is they're making sure that none of the people who are open-minded and would laugh at their humor will show up because they're not allowed to. And they're drawing in, they're attracting all of the people who are going to get offended by absolutely everything and anything that they say. So they're setting themselves up to fail by making sure that their audience is a woke progressive audience. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So you're going to see more of this, definitely, because they want to, as I said, make that standard be that we address anybody and everybody as they, them, until that person tells them otherwise. So they want to force us to announce what our pronouns are, our preferred pronouns, if we want to be called he, him, she, her, whatever. But if you go through and read 
the responses to Halifax's tweet about this, you will probably be encouraged because I think zero people like it. I'm all about people being called what they want. If you want to be called something, say what you want to be called, and that's fine with me. I don't care. But don't try to force people to call you something. Don't get mad at them if they happen to call you the wrong thing and accuse them of misgendering you and call them a bigot. Be reasonable about it. Be cool about it. If you ask them and they make a conscious effort and they make a mistake, don't be a dick. Just be cool and other people will be cool to you. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's move on to everybody's favorite subject, the best drama or worst drama on television. The January 6th hearings. More than ever this week, the reporting on the January 6th hearings have demonstrated what the fundamental principle of narrative warfare looks like in action, playing out in the news. And that principle is this. Narrative warfare is not about truth. It is about meaning. There's a book written on this subject by a woman named Ajit Man who wrote the book for intelligence industry professionals, and she's worked with government, and she's worked with think tanks. Here's a quote from her from an article that she wrote for Real Clear Defense, talking about what narrative warfare is and this principle. She says, narrative warfare is warfare over the meaning of the information. Narratives do not tell facts. Narratives tell meaning. And that is what we see in the news every single day, and we're actually seeing them condition the public to accept this, to accept the fact that they will tell us stories that are not true because they're trying to convey a specific meaning that they will then tell you, well, it is true, so therefore it's okay for us to lie about the specific story we told you. And these clips I'm about to play for you, where they're talking about this Cassie Hutchinson and her testimony on January 6th, illustrate this more perfectly than just about any other story that I've seen. It's so obvious and so blatant in the way that they're talking about. Now, Hutchinson told this ridiculous story of Trump trying to go action star and jerk the wheel away from his Secret Service agent on January 6th, basically like attacking them in the car so that he could take over the car and then drive to the Capitol in anger. The story was obviously very ridiculous, and she was not even there. This was a hearsay story that she was told by someone else. And in response to her testimony, Secret Service agents who were actually there one who was driving the car and involved in the incident that she was speaking about, have come out and disputed her testimony. Well, how does the media report on this? They do it like a good agent of narrative warfare would. Here's the first clip. This is from CNN, and they're talking about the conflicting stories that Cassidy Hutchinson told and what the Secret Service agent who was actually there told. Committee members have said that Ornato's version of what happened uh, on that day differs from what Hutchinson said, and they believe Hutchinson over Ornato at this point. But the Secret Service has said that they are willing to let both of these individuals come before the committee again and testify under oath. Now, if they do that, John, that opens them up to answering questions on a whole host of things, not just this specific incident as well. And it's important to point out that the committee believes the most important part of that testimony is not whether or not Donald Trump lunged at that steering wheel or even potentially attacked a a member of the Secret Service. It's that he wanted to go to the Capitol and he was angry about it. And there is no one disputing that fact up until this point. Now, that's an extraordinary clip. First of all, he says that the committee... They believe the person who was not there, who's getting secondhand knowledge over the person who was actually there, who is the person who she is claiming was attacked by Trump. He is literally one of the people 
who were involved in this alleged attack. And the committee is saying, and this guy on CNN and every other network is saying, we definitely believe Hutchinson, who wasn't there, over the person who was actually allegedly involved in this. And then they go on to do what every single network has done today. They say, it just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether or not he lunged or attacked a member of the Secret Service. It doesn't matter if he attacked a member of the Secret Service. That's not an important part. I mean, that's what he just said. All that matters, the most important part, is that he was angry and he wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th. They keep emphasizing that meaning, that takeaway, and they keep doing it in a way where they say, yeah, 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 she, she lied, she dramatized, she made that up. It doesn't matter if it's true, though. All that matters is that Trump was angry, we know this, and he wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th. Everybody knows that. It's not in dispute. Just a blatant demonstration of trying to tell the viewers what the meaning is and trying to get them to disregard the actual facts or truth. Here's another example from CNN of them doing the exact same thing. Just listen to how coordinated these messages are coming from different sources, different anchors, different guests. And go, clearly committee members do not think Mr. Ornato is a truth teller. This is Stephanie Murphy, one of the members. Listen. Mr. Ornato um, did not have as clear of memories uh, from uh, this period of time as I would say Ms. Hutchinson did, if that's a fair assessment there. Is that a fair assessment? Is it a fair assessment to say that the person who was not there has a better memory of the incident than the person who was actually involved in the incident? Yeah, it's a fair assessment. That makes perfect sense. Just another example of them saying, here's what this means. It doesn't matter how ridiculously untrue this is. Here's what this means. Here's yet another example from the CNN of late night, Stephen Colbert, who has Kensington on his show. Kensington, who is on the committee, the January 6th committee, to tell the exact same message that we've heard in these previous clips. As you said yesterday, was startling testimony from Ms. Hutchinson. What, what did she reveal in those hearings to the American people that you found most important? There was a lot of things. I, I think one of the most important pieces of information, Donald Trump knew there were guns in the crowd. Donald Trump wanted to get rid of the magnetometers because he's still obsessed with crowd size. He still is. And he was worried that it didn't look like enough people were at the ellipse. So he's like, take the magnetometers away, bring them in. I know there's guns, but they're not here to shoot me. They're not here to hurt me. What that says is he knows they're here to hurt somebody. And we also know that he wanted to go down to the Capitol. All you have to do is put those basic pieces of information together and say this was a dangerous man who wanted to overthrow the will of the people. That was one of the most important things. And then just her courage all the way around and talking about some of what she had seen in the White House. And, and uh, it's, it's, I, I, I was inspired. I went down, we gave her, we shook her hand. I went down to shake her hand and she gave me a hug. And I just, I lost it. I don't think the cameras caught it, but I'm just like, because I understand a little bit just a little bit of what it took for her to do that and the sacrifices she's now going to face. Oh, he was so inspired by her. He teared up when she embraced him when he came down on the floor. Wow, and she's going to face all these obstacles and struggles in the future. What, like getting embraced by the Democrat Party, getting funded, probably a job, probably getting paid off to do this for all we know. Being a hero in the liberal media, she's going to really struggle through that. And how about that leap of logic that Kinzinger made there? That was impressive. All we need to know, look, don't worry about any of the facts. It doesn't matter. All you need to know is that Trump knew there were guns in the crowd. He wanted to let them in because they weren't there to shoot him. What that tells you is that he knew they were there to hurt and shoot somebody and that he wanted to go down to the Capitol. Therefore, Trump is a dangerous man. 
Who wants to overthrow the will of the people? Case closed. This is ancient alien-like reasoning, like storytelling here. Just piecing together dramatic pieces of information, making giant leaps of logic, and giving a nice little conclusive package there at the end. Just trying to fill that narrative need. Tell that story void of facts, filled with drama. That's the purpose anyway. The problem with their storytelling is that it has to be based on something that is plausible. When it becomes too removed from reality, like the P dossier, and like this story of Trump trying to jerk the wheel, dive up through into the front seat, take the wheel away from the Secret Service agent, and pull some action move, whip the car around, get back down to the Capitol. It gets too far removed from reality, and you lose people. And finally, one more clip, possibly the best example of this narrative warfare strategy in action. It's also from CNN, a panel discussion where he outright admits it's about the narrative and not about the truth. Is it, to Ryan Noble's point, instead maybe what's most important to the committee in the sense that the key point that's not in dispute is that Donald Trump wanted to go? Yeah. He wanted to go to the Capitol. Uh, Trump critics uh, relished in the idea that the president was unhinged and he had this rage, and that's the point that's in dispute. How, you know, how angry was he? Did he actually reach out for a Secret Service agent? How important is that to the committee, I guess, is the point. Right, right, right. It's about this anecdote itself. The only thing that's in dispute is the, is the legitimacy of this specific instance. What is not in dispute is the overall picture that the witness painted. We have not seen that really refuted, even from the folks that, in, in which she named. Uh, that, is a, that is a picture that is very clear that says that Donald Trump and those around him uh, knew the risk and the violence risk of the January 6th mob, and they not only did not care about those risks, but encouraged them. And that's a picture that we have seen consistent throughout these hearings. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do on this disputed point, because we know the kind of Trump world has a history of latching on to these instances and, and, and trying to blow up a full scenario. And we know that this is a community that doesn't really have a, a history of credibility. You know, as journalists, if we were going to put this person in the story, we would have to know that they have a, have a history of lying. And so this is, a, this is a choice that the committee has to make, but it is also about what, as you say, is their priority in terms of the narrative. And yeah, that's what all their choices are. They're based on what the narrative is they want to portray. So they're not going to bring in any witnesses who might say something that will undermine that narrative. And by the way, Trump being mad and wanting to go to the Capitol and knowing that people had guns who were going there, that does not equal that you are trying to do a coup. It's concealed carry in D.C. I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody who lives there, but I'm pretty sure it's concealed carry in D.C. So it's not illegal to have guns. And Trump saying they're not going to shoot him because they're his supporters. That doesn't mean he was saying, yes, go shoot other people. I want you to have the guns in there and blow everybody away. He didn't say any of that. And did anybody get shot by Trump supporters? Please tell me all of the people that get shot on January 6th by Trump supporters. And this clown admitted that this incident that Hutchinson was describing, yeah, people question that. And he basically admitted that it wasn't true and it was exaggerated or just flat out made up. And then he goes on to say that Trump supporters have this thing where they latch on to these details about stories, where they latch on to literal fake stories that you just admitted is not true. They have this problem of latching on to made up lies. And then they themselves, you know, they're not credible. The logic of these people, do you guys think that this guy that you just heard, is he buying into this or is his brain really just twisted and melted up to where he spits that nonsense out and thinks it somehow makes sense? 
All right, before we get to the final story of the day where we are going to talk about how this same narrative warfare strategy is being applied to the reporting on the Ukraine war, especially today, before we get to that, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about in the XR, which is comedians replacing their punchlines with protest slogans and how bad late night comedy has just become overall. And we might look at a pretty interesting polling data that shows how Americans' values have changed over the past generation or so, maybe not quite that long. If you want access to that XR content, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there to get access. Now on to the final story of the day. There were reports today and yesterday about that island in Ukraine where the Russians came and the Ukrainian soldiers apparently said F you to Russia. And initially it was reported that the Russians just slaughtered all of those Ukrainians. It was one of the first stories in this war that was made up. And it's been admitted that it was made up. And it was spread by official sources, Ukrainian sources. And it was spread by all of our media. And then it was admitted that it wasn't true because all of those soldiers happened to still be alive. Well, today they brought that story back. And they were talking about how that island is a symbol of Ukrainian resistance because of those soldiers. Here's how they were talking about it today. This is Jake Tapper, CNN. Now, new satellite pictures of Snake Island, the symbol of Ukrainian resistance, have surfaced, showing the island pummeled by drone strikes with no Russian occupiers in sight. Ukraine says they've completely run Russia off the critical Black Sea outcrop, while Russia claims the troop withdrawal was a, quote, gesture of goodwill. CNN's Scott McLean reports for us now from Ukraine, where news of the small island's recapture is making waves. Snake Island has played an outsized role in the war. From the very first day when a Russian warship ordered Ukrainian troops stationed there to surrender and got this response. Since then, that defiant response has been immortalized in a postage stamp, reprinted on every kind of souvenir, and is still a source of national pride. We will never give up, you know, like never, ever, like, you know, like, like the people from like Snake Island, they knew this is like a fight they cannot win, right? But they were still like, you. It would be great if the next Russian goodwill gesture would be Putin shooting himself in his bunker. Like Hitler, you know, because Putin's Hitler. So go to your bunker, Putin, and, you know, do what you got to do. I wonder if those people there were asked if they knew that these soldiers from Snake Island were still alive. Because that woman who was speaking, who said they knew it was a fight they couldn't win. They were just like, F you. Sounds like she might still think they're dead. I don't know. But the whole reason that this story was in the news, the whole reason that people are even aware of this story is because of the lie that was reported about it. They were symbolized and became heroes because... Everybody was told that they were murdered, slaughtered by the Russians when it was not true. It's a narrative, and they want the narrative to be that these soldiers in this island is a symbol of Russian resistance when the whole thing is based on a complete fabrication like everything in the media. And I think you'll see in this polling data that I'm going to talk about in the XR that Nobody trusts the media anymore. Nobody believes them. And this is why nobody believes them. But it's good. It's good because they lie all the time. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Y'all are fantastic. I'll talk to y'all next time. Have a great rest of your day.